0: Welcome to Indigenous Coffee Talks, a place for live conversations with interesting people from all over the world. And what they have in common is their passion for Jesus and a great story about sharing the good news in the digital space. In each episode of Coffee Talks, we introduce you to someone who is passionate about using their digital footprint to help bring the gospel to where it needs to go. Through these conversations, we want you to catch a story
1: grab an idea and go do something.
2: Hello everybody and welcome to the first ever Indigenous Crossover event combining Coffee Talks and Pulse. These are the two um, a podcast that we host. And if you have no idea what that means, that's okay. We have a great guest for this episode, and that's the important part. In today's episode, we are joined by Becky Pippert. She's an author, evangelist, and international speaker who helps Christians gain confidence and build competence in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Becky is the author of 11 books, including Stay Salt and Out of the Salt Shaker, and into the world that offer fresh takes on evangelism.
0: We are excited to introduce her to you. That's right, everybody. I'm excited for this episode. And before we get her in, I would like to tell you that almost all of Becca's ministry has been in person, even globally, but it wasn't until the pandemic that she's began doing ministry virtually. And it it came by being invited by Christian organizations or ministries to do podcasts or interviews, and she has been training us um, in evangelism by helping followers of Christ understand what we believe, that is the gospel, and a lot more. So with that, um, I'd like us to invite Becky in, and welcome to Indigenous Coffee Talks. We're so glad to have you here with us, Becky. Thank you so much, Jonah. I am delighted to be here.
2: Yay, I'm excited too. Also, we'd like to introduce Jeremy. Jeremy, can you introduce yourself slightly a little bit and introduce yourself to us?
1: Yeah, thanks, Anne. Uh, My name's Jeremy. Um, I have a different indigenous show uh, called Indigenous Pulse. Uh, So we're doing sort of a crossover Mm -hmm. here because Becky has so much great information that kind of, I guess, we both wanted to talk to her. Instead of fighting over her, we just decided to join forces.
0: (laughs) Sharing is caring. That's right, and I've been telling Jeremy that this is the crossover that you guys are, haven't, you know, haven't asked for what you're giving me <laughs> you this. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's the crossover you didn't know you needed. So yeah, really awesome. The three of us just really wanted to have an amazing conversation with Becky. And we're just so honored and grateful for your time and for all of your experience and amazing stories that I'm sure you have. <laughs> so yeah. if we could just start with uh, telling us a little bit about you
3: and who you are and where you grew up.
2: And what mm. was it like?
3: Well, I grew up in the Midwest of America, in a town called Champaign, Illinois, uh, south of Chicago. Um, I am a first generation Christian. I was raised in a wonderful family, uh, but they had not been raised in faith. They hadn't gone to church. We were not raised initially in faith. I am the first person in my family to come to Christ. I'm the eldest of three children. My parents were just delightful, full of fun, uh, very sort of, I think of a can do American type, you know, very positive, life is good, etc. But my father was a friendly atheist, and my mother said, There's something up there somewhere I don't know. Now, at about age eight, my mother decided that we three children needed to have something of a spiritual nature, more for morals, you know, let's just make sure that you understand right from wrong. And so we went to Sunday school, my dad didn't attend, uh, but there were no prayers in my family, no Bible reading. It wasn't hostile, it just didn't exist. In my teenage years I began, and there was a lot going on, uh, of just trying to understand how do we know that something is true. How can I build my life on something big enough? And I really began searching and asking, and I can remember a theme paper that I was to write. This was my senior year of high school. I was 17, and the question was, how can a human being ever claim to know truth in any absolute sense? And I really was searching. And so <clears throat> I'm in my, our back garden outside of our house, and I was thinking about this theme and all of a sudden I saw these ants, little tiny ants, building an ant mound. And they were so busy and I, I would take a leaf and they'd turn a different way. I'd put a, a, a little twig and they'd bounce off and do two different mounds. And I went, oh my gosh, this is like being God. I'm changing the course of their history. And they don't even pay attention. And about that time, two ants crawled on my hand. And I can remember thinking, wouldn't it be funny if one ant turned to the other ant and said, do you believe in Becky? (laughs) And I thought, and what if that ant said, oh, I don't believe in Becky? That myth, that fairy tale. And I thought, I could blow you right off my hand. I, the arrogance of thinking I don't exist. I thought, well, what if the other ant went, No, I believe there's a Becky, a Beckiness in the universe, you know? And I went, How would you know? How would you know? And so all of a sudden my mind started going. And I started thinking, What if I really wanted to show these ants that I'm real, that I'm here? My mind just was racing. And then I went, I know what I'd have to do. I'd have to become an ant. And then I thought, what an amazing thought, the scaling down of the size of me to perfectly represent me in, in this ant. And I went, yeah, but how would they know you're Becky? How would they know it's not an ant? I thought, I'd have to do tricks. <laughs> I'd have to do things no other ant could do. Now, I have to tell you that that was one of the first experiences I ever had of sensing the presence of God. I felt something was pushing my thoughts, and it was frightening, actually. I remember being afraid to look to my right or my left. You know, I just went, oh gosh, what's going on? So I went, okay, I think I've just solved my problem of how can a finite, limited human being ever know truth that is absolute? And the answer is, in one way, we can't. It has to be brought into us. Something on the outside has to come in. And in other words, uh, there needed to be a revelation. You you couldn't figure it all out by yourself. Now I thought, okay, um, have I heard anything like this before? Now in high school, I'd taken a world religion class and you could pick three faiths. So I took Confucius, Muslim, uh, Islam, and uh, Hinduism. I didn't choose Christianity to study, so I had never read one page of the Bible. All right, so I went, all right, I've looked at these other things. I don't remember that kind of a, an idea that from, from the outside, someone came in. And I thought, well, I wonder. I've never looked at Christianity. I wonder if there's anything there. Now, I'd never read a Bible, so I went into the house, and I went, I'm going to get a Bible. I looked all over the house. There was I couldn't find a Bible. I went, all right, I'm going to get any book that has the word Christian in the title or Christianity. And I went into my parents' library, a den we called it, and I looked at all these books, and there was only one book with the title uh, that had Christian in the title, and it was called Mere Christianity. It was by C.S. Lewis. Of course, it's a classic. Someone had given it to my mother. It had never been read. I sat down, and that was my introduction. The ants and C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And for the first time, I began to get the landscape. I, re- I and, and I found out right away that Lewis confirmed that that was the Christian belief, that Jesus had come from God, he had entered human history. Christianity was a religion of revelation. and And he began answering so many of my questions. So I went, all right, I've got to get a Bible. Went out, got a Bible. Came back and I, I wanted to find out about Jesus. So I started reading the Gospels. And I don't know why, but I started with John. Now, if you had asked me what I thought about Jesus, now remember, I'd never read anything, I would have said to you, well, I think he was probably a wonderful guy. Everybody loved him, meek, mild. Because I just seen religious art, the kind of person everybody loved, but especially your grandmother, <laughs> that was sort of my my view, and nothing could have prepared me for the biblical Jesus, nothing he was so different than anything I could have imagined. He went to weddings, he went to parties, he was the kind of person everybody wanted to have over for dinner. You can tell a lot about someone you when you find out who likes them and who doesn 't. I was so shocked to find out that the religious were terribly critical of him and the sinners just loved him and and he was just so completely radical different than what I thought now I had said well I don't like religious hypocrites you know as if I'd met any you know but it was just what you said when you were skeptic I'm only in chapter 2 of John John chapter 2 and it's the story of the temple and the temple had been intended by God to be a house of prayer and, and what was happening? Jesus walks in to the temple and there are the religious trying to make financial profit off of pilgrims coming to worship <clears throat> and and Jesus was so furious that he started turning tables upside down and, and you're know, taking the money and turning it over and I, I couldn't believe it and I went wow I don't like religious hypocrites, but I've never been so angry I trashed a room. I had no idea Jesus and I had anything in common. And the more I read, the more I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if this really is the Son of God? When the chief complaint about Jesus in his lifetime, particularly from the religious, was he just wasn't religious enough. I thought, I love this man. I've got to find out more. Now, it's still quite a story about how I got from there to actually giving my life to Christ. But I'm going to fast forward and say I met a couple. They were brilliant, the uh, uh, Christian couple. And I was sitting in a class. They were teaching. And <clears throat> they began. I had all these questions I, I had, and they answered them without my even raising my hand. But more than anything, I had come to the conclusion, if Christianity is true, then Jesus had to have resurrected. And if he resurrected, he's alive. And if he's alive, and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are talking about the living God. You were talking about something active, passionate, alive. I had never heard anybody ever talk about God like that. And as they are teaching this class, it was a class on, on Christianity. As they're teaching this class, I, I we're sitting around a big table and I kept moving my chair closer and closer. to the, the. It was a couple, but it was the wife. And I went, this is so embarrassing. Why am I doing this? Why, why am I moving my chair closer and closer? And then I realized Jesus had resurrected they were explaining the gospel. Really the first time I understood the gospel. They were explaining the gospel, but more importantly, I was seeing the living God. I was seeing the living Christ alive in a person, and I fell in love with him instantly. And that was the last piece. of It was a longer process than I'm telling you now, but I remember saying to God silently, this is it, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. It's true. He is alive in her, I believe it, it's true. I'm in, I'm saying that. I'm in, I'm 100% in. And then I felt like this warm oil coming down over me like a fire from the top of my head to the tip of my toes. I didn't realize till much later that is when the Holy Spirit entered me. Now, let me tell you something. Let me tell you two things from my conversion story. 25 years later, I went to my high school reunion. I came to Christ. It's my last year of high school. <clears throat> and so 25 year high school reunion. I was really excited about seeing everybody. Person after person came up to me and said, Becky, I can't believe it. you Because I had written out of the salt shaker. That was my first book. And they go, we're studying your book in our class. And I went, oh my goodness, you're a Christian? And they said, yes. And I went, oh. That is so exciting. When did you become a Christian? They said, well, I was a Christian in high school. I said, what? Yeah, I was a Christian. Then I went, why didn't you tell me? And they said, oh, Becky, you were the last person on earth we ever thought would be a Christian. I mean, you were so outgoing and you just seemed so confident and you were really asking all these really smart questions in class, you were clearly a skeptic and we thought, Becky would be the last person on earth who would ever come to Christ. I cannot tell you what the impact that had on me because why was my process of faith, if you will, my process of my conversion so solitary? Because Christians were silent. Nobody told me. And it's partly where I developed uh, my my passion and interest in evangelism because I knew I was open and they couldn't tell. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've got to help Christians understand people like me. One other thing I want to say, often, because I know you're living, listening to this from many different places around the world, and we've traveled, my husband and I, doing ministry all over the world. <clears throat> and often, we've done a lot of ministry in Southeast Asia. And a lot of my brothers and sisters there would say, um, yeah but Becky you know you were raised in a western culture and you don't understand what it's like for us where where face is so important for you it's it's your american culture it's rights and for us it's it's yeah but what if people look at us in the wrong way what what about our relationships how is this going and especially how is this going to impact uh, my parents let me tell you there's a lot more we have in common This is one of the things I've learned all the years of travel. I was a first-generation Christian, like many of you listening to me are. I was the eldest, and it was expected that I would influence my brother and sister. I I wanted my dad to be proud of me, and my mother and I were very, very close. And when I became a Christian, it was the very first time that anything had happened in our relationship that they didn't really, they didn't know what to think, but they didn't approve of it. And it was very painful because I, I I was so close to them. And we weren't, I haven't suffered like so many others I know have, but, but it was painful. And it, our relationship wasn't broken, but it was strained because they didn't understand. I'm gonna tell you something, 30 years later, I led my father to the Lord. And actually about a year after I came to Christ, I led my mother to the Lord. And you know what I said? Oh God I am so glad I am so glad this painful as it was that I chose to be faithful because it was true because I knew it was true and in the end every member of my family including my grandparents came to the Lord but it took a long time so I say this I, I, I know this is a longer answer than I'm going to give to other things but but really who I am and what I do in ministry really came from my background, and from this story I'm telling you.
0: That's right. I, I mean, I'm just amazed, like, hearing you share about that. Like, I'm just reminded about my own story of how I came to know Jesus. And then yeah. um, it's really powerful to just be able to remember how that happened and then all these things. Um, I yeah. think oh, we're going to move a little bit into, like, that. those experiences that you've written, Becky, but just a little um, introduction to, like, how you came about into Christian ministry and then writing you know, these books, like, how did you come to, yeah, proceed with that? Um, I had done my, when I went to university, I did
3: my BA and then I did a master's in English literature. I was just getting ready to start a PhD in English. Uh, And I I was a Christian, of course, but I just thought all ministered to students by being a, a teacher at university. And right after I finished my master's InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, you know, Christian ministry that's all over the world, IFES, IFES, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, that's the umbrella organization. They said, we want you to come on staff and work at colleges in the Pacific Northwest. So that was Oregon and Washington. And these colleges are really quite academic and very, very um, far from God, particularly Reed College in Portland, Oregon. I went, all right. I'll do that. Well, I loved it. And I ended up doing it for five years. And um, uh, I then right after I did those five years, I wrote the book uh, out of the salt shaker because so much happened. Here we are in a really hostile environment at the university and we saw so many people come to Christ. And so so I wrote the book. I was 28 (laughs) and never dreamed. I mean, it changed my whole life. Because um, uh, I I was just talking about, when when I wrote Out of the Salt Shaker, there was an attitude towards evangelism I was wanting to correct. Because remember, the motivation for evangelism and my motivation, it was love. I love my parents. I love my brother and sister. And I I didn't at all think of myself as evangelist. That took much longer to know. But I really, I, I... I was motivated by love and I was concerned that I was seeing it done so badly. The premise when I, for many Christians in the States, evangelism was seen as formulaic, memorized, a technique. The premise was, how can we reach the most people in the shortest amount of time, preach and leave so we don't get contaminated? How many people can we get into the kingdom as fast as possible? And I was looking at that, thinking that can't be right. There must be a better way. And so I really was looking at Jesus. How did Jesus engage with people? And and this is what I was teaching my university students. And I wasn't teaching. That's why I started publicly speaking. Speaking publicly, the very first time I was on staff with university. And so I'm reading the Gospels and I'm looking at how Jesus did it. He had such compassion and love for people. He really listened. He didn't go in and preach first. He listened. He established relationships. People were not evangelistic projects. He had respect. He sought to understand what they were looking for, and he wasn't in a hurry. He took time for people. He asked questions that I learned so much looking at Jesus all these provocative questions, and he roused curiosity. And people began to experience the love of God and feel the love of God because they felt heard and understood by Jesus. Then how he shared the message fascinated me. He never shared that the gospel is the same. And yet, he never shared the gospel in, in always the same way. The metaphors, the language he uses was very dependent upon person he was speaking to he framed the gospel in a way that was dependent upon who they were the woman at the well you know who had this immoral past and uh in a highly shame-based moral culture and how does jesus talk about uh the gospel he talks about being thirsty you come here to draw water and he already knows you know that that she's had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband he starts talking about thirst and I can give you I can answer that thirst so I, it was just fascinating every person he talked to he said it slightly different way um, so uh, the the interest in evangelism the development of an evangelism ministry and then writing the book all came out of my early work with varsity. Then I wrote the book, and then all of a sudden, everybody wanted help in evangelism, especially looking at evangelism through this incarnational lens, a relational lens, where you speak the truth, but you speak the truth in love. So anyway, that's how I got uh, into ministry and writing.
1: And in that book, and a lot of the other stuff that you've written and talked about, you, the one theme that comes up a lot is being salt of the earth, which of course is a biblical reference. Um, and you have a lot of people when they read that passage in the Bible, they just think of sanctification, they think about their own personal walk with God, but you make a case that it's about a lot more than that. And there's a great quote from you that I love, where you say, if salt stays in the salt shaker, then it's just a nice table ornament. So it's not really doing its purpose, it's not helping anyone. So what are ways, how can we be sought to other people?
3: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, that is a great question. Here's the first thing I would say. Jesus really paid attention to who he was speaking to and we need to pay attention, not just to the person we're speaking to, but the cultural challenges that they represent. Uh, For us who live in the West, even though we travel all the time, um, there are tremendous cultural challenges uh, in in the West. And, and the unfortunate thing is so often, the worst in the postmodern, post-truth, post-Christian world travels the fastest <laughs> to the global south. And I don't know, um, I, well, I know better in Malaysia and Thailand. I actually haven't been to the Philippines yet, would love to go. So I'm not sure how deeply the influence of the West has been in the Philippines. But here's what to watch for, because this is one of the challenges we have. In fact, that's why I wrote a new book on evangelism. I did the book that actually just came out, Stay Salt, The World Has Changed, Our Message Must Not. All right, so what are some of these changes? The collapse of a belief in absolute truth. The shift in the West from having an objective authority to just personal preference. Uh, there's a designer religion approach that almost picks cafeteria style. A little bit of karma here, a little bit of you know, something else, a little secularism there. So it's a pick and choose. The sexual revolution, oh my goodness. This is just huge in, in the West and in America right now. That's impacting the world. Furthermore, the cultural influencers in the West have changed. I think, again, in the American context, the media, the way they portray in a very hostile way, usually, Christianity, academia, the way universities, the way they portray Christianity isn't accurate. Uh, Hollywood in America, the movie industry, it's all increasingly hostile and it's not presenting Christianity accurately. So, what I would ask for all of you living in different places, what are the challenges in your culture? What are the deep needs that people want met? Um, Are you living in a shame and honor culture? Are you living in a, I know enough of, because I have a lot of Philippine friends, to know how profoundly relational that culture is and how important it is that, that, um, uh, how difficult. How difficult rejection is or feeling misunderstood, um, what is the confusion about biblical Christianity? Are you in a culture again in the Philippines and I know that it 's not just Philippines listening, but um, you know that, that is a very high percentage of people that go to church, but that doesn 't mean that they understand Christianity. It, it can also often uh, translate into yes, but you know I 'm I'm, uh, I'm good, and I go to church. Etc. It, it, if if there's a state religion, this is true in other places. Where if you look in in Europe, for instance, where there's been a state religion, um, whether it's Lutheran or whatever, it is amazing how how quickly that will become a um, uh, they they reject Christianity. But, be, but they think they understand it. And that's what often happens when there's a, a more religious culture in the past, is they assume they understand it and they don't. Here's what you need to remember. God has placed in all human beings a hunger for meaning and worth, identity, security, peace that can only be found in God through Christ. Unbelievers don't know. They may not even know they're unbelievers. I mean, but there is a longing and a wistfulness that hasn't been met. Um, So that's the first thing, what are the cultural challenges? Second thing, look at how Jesus did it. I think there's three aspects to personal evangelism biblically. It's visual, it's verbal, and it's invitational. Visual, what do I mean? You display the love, you share the love. Paul said we were gentle among you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share not only the gospel of God but our very lives. If, if unbelievers don't see the love of Jesus, we're not going to get anywhere. Uh, we won't get anywhere unless we genuinely care about our friends and, and care about justice. That's another piece, but, but they have to see the love. Secondly, evangelism is verbal. We communicate the truth through the gospel and through our testimony. Um, Love opens the door, but love isn't enough. We need to proclaim the truth. And that's why in the New Testament, the disciples were always gossiping the gospel. And thirdly, it's invitational. We invite people at the right time to respond to Jesus' call um, to surrender their lives. Don't let your fears get the best of you. What I hear all the time, everywhere in the world, and we've been in every continent many times, what if I offend? Well, that's a very good question. And what I find so interesting with our fear of offending is we it never seems to occur to us to say, listen, I don't like Bible bashers. And if I'm coming on too strong, I love God and I'm excited to be a Christian. But if I'm coming on too strong, would you just let me know? It never seems to occur to us to say that. And when we do, then people are going to say, Oh, you're normal, <laughs> I thought you were one of them, you know, one of those you know, Bible bashers. So, so ask if you're fearful of offending, or what I hear all the time, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? People ask me questions all the time, I can't answer. What do we say? That's a fantastic question. I haven't a clue what the answer is, but I can't wait to find out. I am so glad God brought you into my life to help me to learn. Um, it, it, people want real, they want authentic. And remember this, the key is that God does not send us out empty-handed. He gives us everything we need. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of His love, uh, the power of His truth. He really does equip us far more than we realize.
1: I think a lot of people... A lot of Christians, when they think of evangelism, they still might think, oh, that's something other people are good at, because I'm not outgoing, I'm not an extroverted person. You actually refute that. There's a quote in uh, in your first book, Out of the Salt Shaker, where you say, being an extrovert isn't essential to evangelism, obedience and love are. So what would you say to the introverts out there that aren't really good at striking up conversations in general, let alone faith conversations?
3: Okay. First of all, I hear all the time, yeah, Becky, exactly what you're saying, Jeremy. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not an extrovert. I don't fit that mold of an evangelist. And I, I'm not saying, well, here's the thing where you've got to start. What did Jesus say when he, in his command? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you to the end of the age. What, what, when I keep meeting Christians around the world, I go, do you realize what Jesus didn't say? It's almost as if you think Jesus said, go ye therefore, all you American extroverts, those with dynamic communication skills, all of you gifted evangelists and clergy, and okay, all you Baptists, go and make disciples and the rest of you just hang out. Sing some hymns. I'll be back. Jesus commands and calls every Christian from every culture, from every nation. And he never mentions gifts or personality types. He, because I don't think a lot of people do have the gift of the evangelist. But we're all called to be witnesses. And we're called to enter this broken world as agents and bearers of the good news of the gospel. It's also very important to remember why did Jesus command it? Why does he command us? Because God the Father and the Son Jesus loves people. He, the Father sent the most precious thing he had, his Son. God loves sinners and he loves saints. He loves the lost, he loves the found, and so must we. Now, I have done evangelism training everywhere in the world and this is the number one thing I hear. Even beyond being an introvert, by the way, because even as introverts, what's one of the keys in caring for people? Asking questions, listening. Actually, introverts are very good at witness because often they're very good listeners. And, and they, they if they can learn how to ask questions and genuinely care for people, that is the beginning. All right. Now, what do I always hear? I, I, Becky, I really want to share my faith. I really do. I can't. Why? because, and then it's as if they're sharing their deepest, darkest secret. I'm inadequate. I go, well, of course you're inadequate. I'm inadequate, uh, but, but we're all inadequate. But, but who dwells within us? The greatest evangelist there ever was, Jesus Christ, and he helps us through the spirit. We are creatures, we are not the creator. We have been created to be God-dependent, not self-sufficient. And that's what I'm saying that God does not send us out empty-handed. He and here's here's a really important thing. God is delighted to reveal his glory through human weakness. Now how do we know that? The apostle Paul prayed 3 times for the Lord to take away his thorn in the flesh. It was being weak. He didn't want to be weak. Take away my he begged God to take away his witness. And what did the Lord say from heaven? No, I'm not going to do it, Paul, because my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. What you see in the Bible is there is this this profound relationship between human weakness and God's power. Throughout the Bible, God is always using people who are always complaining about being weak and, and inadequate. And so when the Lord says this, what does Paul say? Well, all right then, I'm gonna boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me for when I am weak, then I am strong. And where you see him working this out is 1 Corinthians 2, when Paul went to Sin City, Corinth. I'm gonna be in Corinth next month, as a matter of fact. And uh, And what does Paul say in the letter? I came to you in weakness and in great fear and trembling, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul says, learn to glory in your weakness so Christ's power can be revealed. We always think, oh, I'm just not good enough. I'm not, I'm not confident enough. I don't know enough. I'm not holy enough. God has always chosen to use the weak. Uh, There is another who dwells within us. We are not alone. And that's the secret of the Christian life, and it's the secret of evangelism. It's not self-confidence you need. It's God-confidence. The first qualification to be used by God is celebrating our smallness. And the second part, then, is learning to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit, who has all the strength and power we need.
0: I'm amazed by that, Becky, because. as you were sharing about uh, being able to ask questions, answer questions, I'm just, um, my mind just drifts into the reality of the the digital age, right? Because sometimes, sometimes people are saying, oh, I'm behind my screen. I have an excuse not to tell people about the truth because they can't see my face, right? But as you're sharing it, you know, um, just being able to point out the things that you've said earlier about the message does not change, the age, you know, times change, but the but yeah. the but the gospel does That's not. Yeah, and yeah. and you know what? Like as I'm um as I'm hearing you share that, I'm just reminded that yeah, even in digital, because in, in digital we're doing all these digital outreaches and like all these um mov- movements of like bringing people to create something in the digital age, mm. actually goes back to what you shared, of like, mm. are we asking questions about? you know, are we, are we asking people of about, you know, things about how they are? Are they, are we growing in loving them because of knowing what they share in their newsfeed? Are we also sharing the truth through what the posts, um, what our posts say? Or are we even responding to questions that people post in their newsfeed, right? About truth, exactly. about exactly. God, that is, That's true. Really that and then, is so true. And even ads know how to contextualize their ads for you. That's right. <laughs> so, that's so in right. <laughs> so the digital age, right? How are we contextualizing the truth of Jesus, you know, um, gospel message into how yes. we respond to and, people? And
3: that, I, absolutely, everything you said. I say amen and amen. And I think one of the things we need to do on the digital side, because I'm doing a, a tremendous amount during COVID of of virtual. And, um, and, and it, it, it doesn't change that, that love, that sensitivity. Learning how, one of the things we do in our training is, how do you speak the truth but say it in English? In other words, say it in language they can understand, all of that. But let me tell you what you need to be effective in digital. You have to be effective interpersonally, in person. Look, look and ask God. Prayer is the foundation of evangelism and say to God, bring me people you are seeking help me and then you listen you ask questions often you do that they ask you questions and you will have in that context the opportunity of of, of sharing the gospel one of the things I love to do is invite them to take a look at Jesus in the Gospels and say you don't have to believe in the Bible you don't have to believe in anything but how are you gonna make an intelligent decision if you've never looked at what at the primary source material. Take a look at Jesus. He's fascinating. In other words, ask God, look at your neighbors, look at now, you know, COVID, that there's less uh, strictures, we can be with people more, but that is really where it starts. But it's every principle. Jonah, that you just talked about is exactly
1: right. Yeah, and you talked about the importance of being personal in your evangelism rather than having sort of a certain script that you stick to or a right, formula that right. you use all the time. So since God created everyone differently and we all have just different personalities, different interests, different passions, what are how can we share Jesus in a way that fits the mm. way God made us personally?
3: Well, And there's two parts to that question. Um, One is, how can we share our faith in a way that's consistent with who we are, but also consistent with the person we're talking to? I think um, we really need to pay attention to who is this person, what are they like? And again, I guess I want to go back to God uses us in our weakness. When I was a student, um, my third year at university in America, we have four years, and my third year a lot of students travel overseas, and I went to Spain and I write about that now Out of the Salt Shaker. And uh, now I'm a, I've been a Christian, you know, for three years since high school, and I really prayed God would guide me to people, and I asked God to, to particularly show me who were the people that he was seeking. Well, I got to know a group, a particular group on day one. And um, we got to be really good friends, and we did meals together, we studied together, And in that context, I began sharing my faith. And they were all Europeans and from the UK. Uh, No one was a Christian. They all, um, I think maybe one had been baptized, but they didn't have a spiritual background. Anyway, we started talking and they became really intrigued. And then uh, I had a, a, um, a woman named Ruth Siemens that was my spiritual mentor and was working in Christian ministry in Spain. And she said, Becky, you've had good conversations. You've really befriended people. And that's the thing so often Christians miss. They're they're in their Christian bubble. You you haven't done that. You've done a lot of prayer. You have real authentic relationships with a lot of different kinds of people. You've shared the gospel. And what I would said to her, but where do you go from here? And she goes, you know what I do? I'd say, your questions are great. But I have a feeling you've never really read anything about Jesus. What would you think if we get together and we just take a look at who Jesus is? And I said, Ruth, nobody's gonna come to a Bible study, especially these friends. Yeah, She really challenged me and to my absolute horror, I invited all of them and they all said yes. And I went, what in the world am I gonna do? I, I, I I'd never led a Bible study, much less a Bible study with non-Christians. So Ruth helped me and we wrote questions on different passages. We, we did the book of John or Luke, I can't remember. No, I think it was, I think it was Luke because uh, one, uh, n- now I write seeker Bible studies and it, then I was writing in that longhand. Anyway, the first time we meet, well actually it, was, it wasn't the first time. The first time only one person showed up. Second time only one person showed up. Third time finally everybody came. The one person that came that I didn't want to come was Martin, Martin was Scottish. He was the most hostile non-Christian I'd ever met. I loved him, he's a great friend. But, but I, I prayed every week he wouldn't show up and every week he came. And he was always, you know, pressing me and all that. Well, anyway, <clears throat> I go back to Ruth and I said, you know what really amazes me is the power of the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of Jesus. I said, here are people who really have no background, very little background, and they are as drawn to Jesus as I was when I first started reading about Jesus. And I said, but I don't know where to go from here. So she said, Becky, I'm glad you asked that. What you need to do is you need to pick the one you think is the most open to the kingdom. And then ask them, is there any reason why you couldn't become a Christian? Get together for coffee. I said, Ruth, I can't. You and Billy Graham, you know, you're really good at this and you lead people to Christ. I'm too young. I could never lead, I'm too young to lead someone to Christ. She goes, no, you're not. So she explains all this and really challenges me. So I did something very naughty. I didn't pick the person that was the most likely to become a Christian. I picked the person who was the least. And that was Martin. So we get together, I said, Martin, let's have a cup of coffee. And I said, you know, Martin, someday, sometime, God is going to ask you, what are you going to do with me? And when that day comes, years and years from now, I really hope you say yes. Now, no one could have accused me of pressure tactics. And he goes, you know, Becky, it's funny you said that because every time I'm alone, since I got to know you and we became friends, then all of us, there were, I think he was the only guy, everybody else, there was about a group of seven. But every time, then I started reading about Jesus. Every time I'm alone, my thoughts keep turning to God. And for an atheist, that can be rather unsettling. <laughs> and I said, yes, and that's what I'm saying. Years and years from now, I really hope when you think about Christ, you will consider him. And he goes, Becky, you don't understand. And I'll never forget this. We're at a restaurant, a cafe. And he goes, he pounds the table and he goes, I want to become a Christian now. And I went, oh, Martin, I can't, I can't. He said, why not? I go, I don't know how. I can't remember what we're to do. He said, well, it can't be that hard. He said, why don't you kick it open with a prayer? I'll pray, you pray, it'll be over before you know it and Martin gave his life to the Lord. Would you believe that that conversion led five others in the Bible study, five, four other, five in that study came to to the Lord. But that night when Martin gave his life to the Lord, I remember I was in bed and then I got out of bed at night and I was so overwhelmed. And I said, I can't believe you can use the likes of me that you could use somebody as weak as I am. Martin had to help me to lead him to Christ. That's pretty weak. And I said, Lord, until I draw my last breath, I am going to be telling people, God can use you just the way you are, even the most unlikely. So, what have I learned in all these years in doing evangelism? Number one, Evangelism is easier than I thought when you follow Jesus' way. People are more open than we think when we do it the way Jesus did. Secondly, evangelism is harder than I imagined because we have an enemy. And Satan will intimidate us and harass us. So we shouldn't be surprised when difficulties come, when our fears are raised. But my friends, he's a defeated foe. We cannot allow him to intimidate us. Jesus defeated him at the cross. So we need to pray and learn how to engage in spiritual warfare. And thirdly, God uses us in our weakness. So what we need is a holistic approach to evangelism that's spiritually faithful, culturally relevant, spirit-dependent, and relationally authentic. Not everyone is called, is gifted as an evangelist. But, oh, my friends, we've all been called to be witnesses to Christ who live on the very frontiers of God's redemptive involvement with the world, in the world. And through God's spirit, we can do it. Becky,
2: I am inspired. So thank you so much. I really, you know, I think, wow, it's so good to hear how you were personally challenged at the beginning of this of this whole evangelism and faith journey for yourself, and that could give hope to us. Like we, I see you, and I'm like, oh, you, you know, you've done this. You're you're the professional. You probably hate that, but <laughs> you know, but I'm like, oh, if Becky, you know, we don't hear how you started, and I really appreciated your story of how you were personally challenged. Um, by your mentor and that you actually stepped out in faith and courage to do that um, and to try. Um, And yeah, so thank you so much for doing that. I was thinking about, I mean, I've been listening to your conversation and one of the things that I've learned with working with people who are in the tech industry is they have this concept called um, human-centered design. And uh, it's when you are faced with an issue and then you, the process is like, how do you approach your, the issue or the problem that's set before you? And what they do is they first say to pause, stop and to listen, listen to the people who have been impacted by this problem, their pain point. And then the second step is to actually pause again and have empathy for them. And then when you're talking about compassion, you are really talking about listening to the person and then having compassion or empathy for them. Because they are in a situation, like for people who are without Christ, they are without Jesus. And how in the world are they? How do they live? How do they cope without the love of God, without that understanding? And then and then you start moving into the solution. And so then, yeah. and after you've listened and had empathy, mm-hmm. then you start talking about the good news, the gospel, yeah. the love of Jesus and the love of God. Um, yeah. So I really yeah. think that that is what you're saying. And I actually thought about this a couple of weeks ago and yeah. I, I said, we should call it human centered evangelism. And yes. I think that that would be a much better approach um, yes. And those, that's what I've been learning from people who work in the tech industry. So kind of put those concepts together, but then have a nice yeah. little twist and say
3: human-centered evangelism. Let me add one thing to that. And that is, um, and I know I've said it, but I, I want to keep saying it. We are partnering with God. So it's, it's God-dependent, human-centered. I guess that's what I'd add. God-dependent, and how do we do that? When you're talking with somebody, when I'm talking to anybody that I think maybe isn't a believer, I immediately, immediately pray silently and say, Lord, come Holy Spirit, come. Open my eyes, open my heart, fill me with your love, help me. Um, and and it, as the conversation goes, I'm having a dialogue with God while I'm listening very carefully to this person, and I'll say, uh, Lord, I need, I need your wisdom. Uh, Maybe they're difficult, I need, I need your supernatural love. Whatever it is you sense you need, it's that ongoing dialogue, but it's two ways. It's to God through Christ, and it's to the person. That, when we're doing that, it takes the, the, the pressure off because it, it, we so often think it's all up to us, and it's not. I, and I love what you just said, I really did. That is a fascinating framework for how to correctly respond to people.
0: I've been taking notes mentally and also writing them down. Um, Yeah, in my heart, Becky, all of these things that you've said. Um, And as we close, what is one thing or two things that you'd like to leave our listeners with as an encouragement or a challenge? The first challenge would be remember
3: remember you are not alone remember God is with you and he loves he loves you and he loves the lost and so when you're remembering you're praying and asking God show me show me who you are seeking help me so that's the first thing is that it's why prayer is so foundational and it is um, why the love of God is so important and the truth of God is so important. So remember, remember it's okay to be inadequate and weak. We depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, I think the other thing I'd say is quit focusing so much on yourself. How am I coming across? What do they think? Am I doing it right? I used to do that all the time and go, oh, I didn't answer that question right. I still sometimes I'll come away and go, oh, I wish I remembered this. But over the years, I've realized that, that it is God. He's the great evangelist, and he's going to use us in our weakness. And there isn't a perfect way to be a witness. There is no magic formula. And, and so we need to give up thinking, oh, well, this is, this is the perfect way. No. Now we need to uh, take the attention off of ourselves, onto God and onto the other person.
0: Thank you so much, Becky. Guys, if you would like to know more about Becky, get to purchase her books, get to know more about where she's uh, going in her talks. You can visit her page at beckypipper.org. So everybody, if you would like to know your thoughts as well, if you have some reactions, if you have anything you'd like to say about this episode about to tell Becky, uh, we would like for you to email us at talks at Also, Jeremy, tell us more about Pulse.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jonah. Um, so I have another uh, series for Indigenous called Indigitus Pulse. Uh, it's similar to Coffee Talks in that it's an interview-based format. Uh, I talk to a lot of people who are doing innovative things in ministry to share the gospel for ways that make sense for them. So, uh, we share a lot of practical tips and tricks uh, that you can try from your own home. So, uh, we believe that everyone can do something to serve God. And so, we just look at a lot of different ways to do that. So, uh, we hope you'll check that out as well.
2: All right. So, I just want to say thank you to Jeremy for collaborating with us on this yes. interview and especially to Becky. Thank you again for your time. What a joy to have this awesome conversation with you. And also to our listeners, thank you for joining us and see you next time. Bye. Bye. Stay healthy. Bye. Bye.
0: <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You can find more Coffee Talks wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this content, follow Indigenous on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. We'll see you there.